0: Universal private school choice, is it the way forward for post pandemic problems with the public schools? We're gonna talk about it today on the Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, chief influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every Child. Get ready for part two of our interview series on school choice. My guest today is Josh Cowan. He's a professor of education policy. He's also the founding director and co director of the Education Policy Innovation Collaborative, EPIC. Epic. From 2016 to 2014, he was in that role. His current research focuses on teacher quality, student and teacher mobility, and the state and local education program evaluations. That's a lot to get through. You do a lot. And we have done three or four shows on school choice, all from the pro school choice side of things. And we want to mix it up a little bit. You know, we want this audience to have heard multiple perspectives. So Josh, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm appreciating you being here. So eight states, including Arizona, Florida, Indiana, and West Virginia have approved universal school choice Laws since two thousand and twenty one. There's a lot of talk about school choice there being a wave, and it's sweeping the country and and particularly in red states and red state governments, like you have to introduce this bill to get universal school choice in your state. It's pitched as being an opportunity for parents to have power. It's pitched as an opportunity for students to have options, uh, especially when they're trapped in failing schools. And it's pitched as just your right to have the money, your money, follow your child to wherever they can best get an education. So what's wrong with that, Josh? Well,
1: a couple of things. So when we're talking about school choice, I think it's important to remember that there are already a number of different elements to it. And we can unpack each of those if you want. But in general, we have interdistrict or within district open enrollment. So parents uh, can go to public schools in their district or across districts, regardless of where they live. That That's one policy in place. Charter schools, of course, which are growing every year, have, have been in place since the mid-90s. Magnet schools and so on and so forth as well that are part of this. The big difference between those programs and what we're talking about today and what we're talking about over the last year have been the effort to use tax dollars to fund private schools. So each of those other three options, choice within the public sector, and there are strengths and limitations to each of those. But the big separation between the last 12 months or so of, of policy making. And there are the precedents for it, but, but just that last 12 months or so of real rush in those red states that you described in the open, it's using tax dollars to fund private education. And that's really the big difference here. And just to sort of think about it from the outset, anytime you're going to create a new policy, right, it's really two important questions. One is, how's it going to work? Does it work? And the other is, is it the right thing to do? And by both of those measures, these school voucher schemes, this taxpayer dollars for private education. The answer is no. Do they work? It's really difficult going over the last decade or so to find research, at least in the education policy community, that has shown as negative a set of impacts on kids learning as those for kids who switch from public schools to private schools using vouchers. And we can unpack that if you'd like. But the, uh, the effects of doing that are devastating for kids. And there's some reasons for that. Most Most of those boil down to the fact that most of the high quality kind of elite private schools that we think of uh, when we think of private education, they're not the ones taking vouchers. Uh, they make a lot of rules for who can take those and who can't. The ones that really rush to, to come into these programs are the kind of financially distressed schools, schools that are pop up, kind of running in to get taxpayer dollars. And that's why we see negative impacts. And then the other piece is, of course, the more important one from the standpoint, of just I think moral public policy, is, is this the right thing to do? Well, the Supreme Court has said in in I think it's four different rulings, related rulings dating back to 2002, that vouchers are constitutional. But just because we can do something doesn't mean we should, right? And what these programs do is they subsidize discrimination across a variety of levels. Today's sort of hot topic is discrimination against LGBTQ kids. We've seen substantial investigative reporting showing how voucher schools avoid oversight And set up barriers to lgbtq kids but it's not just on that there's an article last year the heritage foundation arguing that vouchers are the way to go if we want to avoid quote-unquote woke education we know what that means and then there's substantial history of voucher schools both now and in the, the last 20 years of their smaller operation barriers against students with disabilities so on those sort of three metrics the whole point of these things is to allow choice for some people and, and prevent choice from others. And, and what I like to say is when it comes to vouchers in particular, it's it's actually the school's choice, not school choice. They can decide who to take and who not to. And so this idea that it's universal. Is it really only applies to a subset of kids, those who can get in and stay in.
0: So I like that you make the distinction between public school choice, which we could just put to the side for now, because when people talk about choice, I actually didn't used to make a distinction between the two, but I think I now have to make a distinction between the two because I think they're two different animals. There's public school choice, and there's private school choice, and those are two different discussions in my mind. And the the research is very clear that there's difference in them too. I mean, just the
1: effectiveness of these programs is. I mean, I've said before. I'll say again. Like if you were making an evidence case for school choice, you would focus on charter schools, not not vouchers. But but I agree, we can set
0: that aside. Well, and you know, I think school choice, public school choice, is the inclination of the public system that it has to constantly reinvent and do better and not get comfortable with failure. And all the way since the 1970s, maybe a, a little bit before, that is actually what has been happening with public school choice. That's, you know, how we got magnets, it's how we got open schools, it's how we got interdistrict choice schools. It's how we got open enrollment, you know, lots of things still within the same, same system. But let's come to private school choice. So Josh, you say that kids when they leave public schools and go to private schools with a voucher that they do worse. So what's the the evidence of that? What is our indication that they're doing worse? Most of the time, I think um, folks in the political world um, and even some of the policy
1: world don't want to talk about the research side of things. What they do, they use it to sort of make talking points. In the voucher case, all of the pro-voucher research that's out there in one way or another was created in part to serve as evidence for either litigation, in particular for the 2002 Supreme Court case that blessed these things, or for state-level policy. And all of that positive evidence came about 20 years ago at this point on small targeted private programs, either privately funded in the case of a uh, New York City, Dayton, and Washington, D.C. program, which 20 years on was published in 2002. 20 years on remains the best evidence for vouchers out there. And we're talking about three or 4,000 kids in those programs and a lot of kind of mixed bag stuff, but not negative, either no effect or tiny positive. And then in 2010, about a decade ago, a little more than a decade ago, starting in Louisiana, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, and then in Indiana, where a similar program was built, and then in another sort of expansion of Washington, D.C.'s voucher program, and then in Ohio, we saw a series of independent evaluations of scaled-up voucher programs. What does scaled-up mean? It means statewide. It means the type of large-scale voucher programs that we're talking about today that have been passed through the legislatures in the last few months. Those more recent, larger, statewide programs have shown some of the largest negative test score impacts that we've ever seen in education research. It's it's, to to kind of benchmark these, you have to go to the test score drops induced by COVID more recently, or another good metric, but not good metric, but a similar size metric is actually what what Hurricane Katrina itself did to test scores in Louisiana. Really big drops in academic outcomes for those kids who transferred And That's the key distinction, is that all of that evidence is in the most recent research on vouchers and in the largest voucher programs. So sort of to sum that up, tiny pilot-sized programs set up specifically to to be demonstrations of evidence for litigation, in the Supreme Court case, Selman v. Simmons Harris in particular, or for legislation in the late 90s in Milwaukee and Cleveland, those did show some positive impacts on those small demonstration programs. But the scale up Statewide programs that are in existence today and that are the models for what we're talking about today over the last few months have really shown devastating outcomes. And the reason for that isn't just the size, but it's what comes with the size. And that's that there just aren't enough high quality providers out there to take all of these children. And not for lack of trying, by the way, a lot of pop-up schools come when these voucher programs come to come to town. And they often have very short, short lives. So in Wisconsin, for example, 40% of voucher receiving schools have closed since Wisconsin's program has been in place. And that's been over 25 years. 40%, that's a very high failure rate. And that's, that's really what it comes down to is that there's just, it's really hard to educate kids, it turns out. And for all the criticism that we level at public schools, it's really difficult work to do. And you're seeing that you can't just have kind of providers jump into the field, and start taking public dollars and educating kids. All of a sudden it doesn't really work that way most of the time. Um, and even with charter schools, we've seen some effective charter schools, but most of them, there's a big cutoff to the charter school research. For those who can make it three years, they tend to keep going and do all right by kids. But there's this kind of early flux uh, in those first one year, two year, three years that, of schools that come in and then, and then close. And that's you know, across the board, no matter what sector we're in, Closure rates are really bad for children.
0: We know that. I want to come back to that part. Let's bookmark that for a second and stick with the, this this question. I want to say, or I want to ask, what's our evidence though? When we say they're doing better or doing worse, what do we mean? Like, what's the marker? What's the thing that they're doing better at? So test scores is the thing. Exactly. So my view is like, we can have a debate
1: about standardized tests in this country. and We probably should. But test scores are what the conservative right Used to ding public schools and call them failures. And so my view is, I'm just, I'm not, like, I'm not a test score expert. I'm not weighing in on that. I'm saying, okay, if we're going to use that as the coin of the realm (laughs) and as the score for how we're going to evaluate public schools, then that needs to be the benchmark and the metric that we use to evaluate private schools that are taking public dollars. And it's on that metric that the failure is so, so, so extreme. There is, voucher advocates will point to a couple of studies that show higher slightly higher graduation rates for voucher-using kids. At the same time, critics of using graduation rates as a metric for public school accountability have spent 20 years saying public schools can't be evaluated on graduation rates because that just they just know how to game the system. It's a lot easier to just promote a kid, graduate them, than it is to see how they do on academics. So all I'm asking is if we evaluate voucher schools on the same metrics that we evaluate public schools, on those metrics, Uh, the evidence is really clear. I mean, almost overwhelmingly. So we just don't get, you talk to an academic most of the time, they're going to give you on the one hand, on the other hand, there's no real on the other hand with vouchers, at least not in the last decade.
0: So do you think that by using that as the metric though, you know, kind of the everybody is doing it metric, that that comes back to bite everybody then? Because if you say, well, voucher kids aren't doing very well and your metric is a test score, then it must mean that the public schools that have those exact same test scores are not doing very well. And if the answer is to stop vouchers or to close them down in some way, then doesn't that just come back to bite you on the other side? If you're using that metric to make an argument, it's going to be kind of like a boomerang, right? Now These negative impacts of vouchers are for kids
1: who transfer from public to private. That's actually, I don't want to get to this because the vast majority of voucher users are already in private school before the taxpayers picked up the dime. But for those who do transfer, and we need to really understand how the program works, and this is the case a public sector research question too, you need to have a, a, a before and after. So on the before and after, what I'm saying is the kids who were in public and who moved to private. So we know what they were doing on the test score in public, and we know what they are doing on the test score in private. And it's that's how we can gauge the the size of the drop. And it's the size of that drop that's really, I mean, it's again, it's it's pretty close to unprecedented. We there's a lot of conversation right now about the impacts of teacher evaluation programs over the last um, in the last year. uh, A really important report came out. Brown, economist Matt Craft, a bunch of co authors. And they kind of set what I think is the standard at this point uh, for understanding how teacher evaluation reform over the last 20 years has worked. And their answer, in sum, is it had a lot, a whole lot of no impact on kids' outcomes, a whole lot of zero impacts. That's considered a failed program, no impact. How much more of a failure then? is
0: actually hurting kids. You just don't, you don't see that very often in education. Do we have studies that show, so first of all, the studies that I looked at that a lot of this rests on, a lot of it is the low-income kids transferring. As a matter of fact, like one of the studies, Ohio, I think only looked at low-income middle schoolers. So each of the studies has kind of, to me, like a flaw in it that doesn't allow me to talk universally, like talk about the whole country, because you know, the, the Milwaukee example and the Ohio example, they've got different things going on. But my, my I guess the question that I have is, do we have any research that kids who make non structural changes now structural changes is when a whole cohort leaves a school and goes to another school. So that happens in middle school and then it happens in high school. And and there's some drop off in test scores of even structural transfers. So kids who leave one school and then go to high school or go to middle school have a drop in the beginning. But what about ones that go from one, because this is going to be your transient populations, probably mostly kids of color and low income. They go from one public school to another public school.
1: Well, this is an important question because in general, we know that school mobility, apart from natural school mobility, like you're describing it, structural middle school to high school, elementary to middle school, whatever. School mobility isn't isn't doesn't tend to be a good thing. Vouchers programs have extraordinarily high between year exit rates. It's a real revolving door. Sometimes upward of thirty percent of kids leaving voucher programs every year to go back to schools. But that same rate is is fairly typical in public school districts, particularly low-income districts and urban districts, where there are a lot of schools. Milwaukee, for example, is an annual uh, between-school transfer rate of roughly 25% or so. So that's on par with what programs do. The way to think about that question is there's no sort of s- structural stability that the private school choice system provides. There are a number of, of flaws and shortcomings in the public school side, but they are all present in abundance on the voucher side too. Vouchers don't solve any of the shortcomings that the public school
0: districts have. So do you have kind of a prediction of what will happen now that you have more private school families going on the private school programs, you know, like vouchers and ESAs? It's probably going to increase the outcomes or improve the outcomes because the pool is going to be different now, right?
1: Well, we're not going to
0: know. That's another
1: hallmark of recent legislation is that coming on the heels of the last decade of really horrific test score outcomes for voucher users, all the new legislation without exception contains no new requirement for accountability or evaluation or oversight unlike the earlier programs. And and so and I've said this to Anyone who'll listen, it's increasingly, it's not going to be program evaluators, policy analysts like me who are bringing this kind of evidence such as it is. It's, it's going to be investigative journalists. Maybe you'll see some uh, independent watchdogs. I found out today it's public news that the Arizona attorney general has just opened a consumer complaint protocol for parents who feel like they've been defrauded by their voucher program in, in Arizona. So that type of thing, I think we'll find out more. But if you see a voucher study coming in the next couple of years, it's almost certainly being done in house by political advocacy group because the legislation involved. It's a real difference. Twenty years ago, and this is when I got started in this, and I was working with some of the pro-voucher groups. They were rushing to provide new studies, reports, evaluations, because if you know these guys, they love to go running around and saying scoreboard winner you know and talk about these mm-hmm, things they mm-hmm. love to point to it. if they thought that new research would promote the cause even further particularly in purple states like pennsylvania or michigan they, it would have been trivial to add new accountability requirements or new new evaluations to the legislation they push through and all of them without exception don't have that and they're, they're, that's the tell they don't want these things investigated they don't want these things evaluated because they they see the same data i do at the end of the day they all know this and uh so we we aren't going to know is the is the is the answer. Uh, not at least not on on performance monitoring. We'll know other things like discrimination reports and things like that. We're not going to know about that.
0: Yeah, I think I saw something a table of school choice studies, and it was like seventy three different school choice studies, um, and the majority of them were all positive on like five factors. And I'm not going to remember what the five factors were, but they were non test score advantages that you have. Even one, including like, you know, we had Robert Inlow on and he mentioned that private school kids are more tolerant. They they have some form of tolerance test and um, and vouchers create more tolerance. I think the newest one that I saw or not long ago was the marriage one. Uh, your marriages work out better if you are a voucher person. Yes. Um, why is that not good? Why are you so down on marriage, man? <laughs> well, a couple of things. I think we get pretty dangerous when we
1: start making arguments or uh, using public policy to induce kind of what's identified as kind of certain types of moral behavior um, on the Christian right, number one. But more importantly, I mean, I can go a couple of different directions here. One of the talking points that that the kind of more research-learned school voucher groups will use, including in that uh, NLO backed ed choice document you're talking about, is we, we got to use randomized control trials to study voucher outcomes. And the reason they say that is because if they take out the devastating twice as large as COVID test score drops from the Louisiana voucher randomized experiment, on balance, those randomized experiments look okay for vouchers, in particular, the one that was published 20 years ago in New York, Dayton, and Washington, D.C. Again, the goalposts always shift. So none of the studies you just mentioned on characters is the kind of summary word they use. None of those are randomized control trials. Most of those are based on surveys. How do you know about families that have stayed married? It's not of school data. It's because they asked them. So just from a research quality standpoint, I mean, some of this is just you know, sort of silly. But the other piece is like, you know, at the end of the day, some of this does become normative. I reject the idea that we know great things happen for people who stay married, but I reject the idea that a failed marriage or uh, an out-of-wedlock child is the other measure they use, single moms. I reject the idea that divorcees, single moms, and uh, and drug users are inherently immoral people. Those three are the, the metrics they used to say that vouchers promote character, promotes marital stability, fewer single moms and fewer addicted people. I mean, if we're going to start talking about using social interventions to affect those things, there's a whole volume of public health <laughs> programs that can do that. That's you know, So I, I don't really know what to make of that other than to say it's post shifting. I also think it's you know, the, the purpose behind those kind of ed choice studies that they're all funded by very conservative organizations. No, only one actually. One positive voucher study on academic outcomes exists in the entirety of the literature that was not funded by a pro-voucher organization. And that's 1998's paper from Milwaukee by an economist named Cecilia Rouse, who's just moved from White House uh, economic advisors to to chair Brookings. But apart from that, all of this evidence comes from from pro-voucher advocacy organizations. That
0: doesn't mean none of its valid,
1: but it does mean you have to take it with
0: a grain of salt. I don't think that a researcher would think that, though. I think you have to take it with a statistical fine tooth comb and comb through them and find out where their methodology is shoddy or broken down. But the idea that because they're funded, this is what I, you know, and listen, (laughs) I am an educational homeless person right now when it comes to all this stuff. Now I'm watching, you know, the the African proverb of when the elephants fight, it's the grass that gets hurt. Yeah. That's the way I feel right now. That's because the elephants are fighting the left and the right, the unions and the billionaires um, are fighting each other in some sort of crazy war. I'm definitely leaning more to towards one side of that and I'm more sympathetic, I think, to one side of that. But, I mean, a lot of the research there's it's hard to find clean research that isn't either from the unions or from from the like pro-advocacy groups. Where's the like to, I just want a guy who's an economist and has no dog in the race, has no dog in the fight just to look at all the evidence and go, "All right, net net <laughs> this is what this is what the answer is.
1: Well, I will tell you, I mean, the Louisiana negative results are in one of the top economics journals in the country. And, and generally speaking, economists as a discipline have have favored these type of market approaches. The University of Arkansas is also the, the publisher of one of those negative Louisiana voucher papers. I don't think this is about putting the finger on the scale methodologically, although the New York City voucher experiment that's so favorably cited and is a key cornerstone of the ed choice document has been debunked debunked by by a number of scholars it it really comes down to this is kind of a very nerdy segue but but a 30 second version of this because this does touch on the other things like discrimination and and um school participation in these programs. It's not really the statistical analysis that's the problem. It's what, it's what lays behind it. It's what what we call in social science the data generating process. It's the process of recruiting schools. into this. So for example, the conservative Bradley Foundation out of Milwaukee has been a big funder of just pulling private schools into these studies just to participate in demonstration in period. They, the federal Washington, D.C. voucher program came online in 2005. Bradley actually put put a fair amount of money into the administrator of that program, it's called the Washington Scholarship Fund, just to pull and recruit schools into it. They're also funding the EdChoice summary studies. They're also funding the research. It's not about tipping the scale on the statistics side. It's about building this evidence, this demonstration base, so that when you do the statistical analysis, Right, you're looking at a certain set of private schools, a certain set of kids going to those private schools. That's why all of the early evidence looks a lot better than the negative, than the than the more recent stuff. Because when you bring these things statewide and you don't have these right wing funders running around pulling schools in, and it's just a free for all, that's when the that's when the outcomes start to look really poor. And I think that's a really important distinction. And I'm glad you asked about that because it doesn't. People think that there's big this this big sort of statistical conspiracy or something else. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the difference between setting up a few small voucher programs to try to prove the point and what happens when they come to scale in these larger
0: environments. Yeah, you know, what I'm advocating is clean data, (laughs) just clean information, right? Like, you know, third party kind of calling it because there are two sides that have a vested interest in their side being right with the public mind. And I think, you know, the public, we're going to do better, I think, moving forward. With a third-party way to mediate democracy in the United States, and we're going to need some sober, authoritative, smart, and sharp people just to tell us what is. We're living in a post-fact era now, and and you know, six years ago, however long it would go, it was. I think it it could have always been. But I noticed in 2016 and beyond that facts are now opinions. Opinions are now facts, and it's all political.
1: I mean, I'm with you, except that the last decade of voucher research from those independent sources that you're talking about—that is where this this negative set of evidence has come from, and it's just been blown past and ignored. I mean, you're talking to somebody who spent his, you gave me this very nice introduction when you came on, and I was one of these evidence data babies from, I mean, I, I from graduate school onward, the U.S. Department of Education 20 years ago, invested in my training and that of a number of other folks on this idea that evidence, third-party evaluation review, that's been my bread and butter. I didn't mean, was not trained as, a, as an advocate in this space. But I was trained as, as somebody who who's supposed to try to call balls and strikes to some extent. And yet over the last 10, 10 years, I mean, you just, again, don't get the level of clarity in a world where there's all kinds of, of, of confusion. You don't get the level of clarity. Is it, is it, am I saying here on this show that all voucher studies show negative impacts? No. What I'm telling you is that the, the most recent on the largest set of kids have been devastating to the level that we haven't seen in voucher research and if and, and many 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 programs in education and other, other social policy areas have been killed for a lot less negative. So I just I'm kind of at a point where I'm not sure evidence matters anymore to be honest. With you. Well it
0: does. it always will. I think I think good people have to hold the line on the things that keep society good. I hope so evidence so so evidence does have to matter. I hope you're right. And authoritative voices that we can trust should matter. It doesn't as much as it should right now. And in my lifetime, I have watched it decline to an alarming level, but evidence should matter. And and so let me, I want to circle back to something I said earlier, and I don't, I have a reason to push this point, I think around the idea that now school choice people are saying that there are these other factors that are more positive besides test scores. Right. And, and I, I wish I had it in front of me, but there's probably about, you know, seven to, to. 12 things that they have in a list that are non-academic test score things that are positive for voucher kids. And and they're all things that parents would want for their kids. So your argument is that, yeah, but kids over there don't move the goalpost. The, the test scores are showing that they're they're having a decline. And my thinking is both sides do this though. So like the the public schools say, well, you can't just look at the test scores. You have to look at all these other factors, like these, there's other stuff that like kids get hugs and you know, so. This thing around the test scores being, and I'm very interested in this, by the way, (laughs) the test scores meaning something, the assessments meaning something for all schools, for charter, public, district schools, magnets, you know, school choice schools, whatever you want to call them. I think you're making an argument. You're making a really interesting admission that test scores matter.
1: What I'm saying is that on the merits of a case that's being built partly on so-called public school failures as determined by test scores. And on this notion that we have COVID learning loss and that that is the reason that we should have vouchers now, which are both two of the several major talking points that voucher advocates use failed public schools. And COVID learning loss; those are test score based arguments. I'm simply saying that if we're going to play on that field, then vouchers fail on the terms those folks have set for the debate. Mm-hmm. If we're not going to talk about test scores, then let's talk about other things. So, 16 million dollars went to school voucher receiving schools in Indiana, home to the to the third largest decline in voucher receiving tests out there. But moving from test scores, 16 million dollars at that same time that that study was conducted went to schools that overtly rejected LGBTQ children. In Wisconsin, recent reporting, just from May, had some detailed explanation of how private schools, and I saw this when I was in the evaluation side of these things, how these private schools go about rejecting LGBTQ kids, students with disabilities, or or so-called disruptive children, whatever that means. What they do, because the state of Wisconsin, unlike some of the the other schools ramming vouchers through right now, it's an older program, they still have some oversight in place on the front end, on the admission side. So they actually do check admission rates and who's getting, you know, they they at least try to eyeball discrimination, but there's no check on the back end on expulsion. So what they do is they admit whoever applies... And then they expel them, ask them to leave and so on and so forth. That's the way they get around you know, discrimination, anti discrimination rules. Uh, so I happen to think that non-discriminatory elements of a, of a public policy is a very important way to evaluate it. So we can move from test scores. Let's talk about all the closed doors to children that are promised. The most disingenuous element of the massive dishonesty that's going on in pitching these programs comes from this phrase, every kid or universal. Or every child deserves to learn. I mean, it's it's not it was, it's was it been nonsense for 20 years since they came up with this phrase. And it's nonsense now. All it means is every kid can apply, but it doesn't mean every kid can use. It doesn't mean every kid can get in. And I think it's, from my view, it's, it's akin to predatory lending. I mean, it's this idea that, you know, you, we're going to pre-approve you for this mortgage. And you too can live in this beautiful gated community. The fine print is you can't get in. And that's a really important distinction here.
0: I think, you know, someone listening to this who doesn't agree with you is going to push back on a lot of what you just said. And and this is where it's going to become the two elephant thing, because what they're going to remind you of is that the majority of American public school students, majority of students go to public schools. Those public schools, the way that they are portioned out, the way that they distribute educational quality, couldn't be more robustly discriminatory. Like if you wanted to make the most discrimination prone system, you would enroll kids by zip codes, by districts, gerrymander districts. That's how you would do it. Just like you gerrymander you know, red states and whatever, so that they keep people in power. I think everybody is conspiring, the left and the right are conspiring to have these really choice islands of privilege public schools and then these other schools that everybody left, right? 120,000 people leaving Detroit. And let's be real, 120,000 white people leaving Detroit at one time. Where did they go? What did they build where they went? Who paid the taxes on the schools that they built when the, where they went? What happened to the schools in the city when they left? I did a tour of Detroit a few years ago, and I thought I had seen the worst in New Orleans and in other places. But Detroit has some schools that were once great big schools, like great big public schools that now have graffiti on them because... People left and not everybody can be mobile and not everybody can get the the housing mortgage, you know, in the suburbs. And if you look at the maps, it's just obvious that like the fairest way to enroll kids would be random assignment of everybody, like a computer algorithm with no, no, no zip codes or boundaries or anything like that. That would be the fairest way, and no one would go for it because the people who love the benefits of a discriminatory enrollment system across multiple districts, 14,000 districts in the United States, they wouldn't stand for it. I mean, you have whole school districts right now where they want to seed from districts because there's too many poor kids. There's too many poor black kids. So one district, and I think this is in Louisiana. I mean, maybe you know about these districts that want to seed because they want the richer people in the district to have their own district, right? I
1: think, you know, and I've done a little work on this myself. I think it's absolutely true that the systemic structural discrimination that has existed for decades in any social policy area disproportionately toward people of color disproportionately toward low-income families more recently disproportionately to migrant families and a number of other children the public school system reflects all of those let's just call it what it is it's like overt discrimination and outright in many cases Racism. Vouchers just don't solve any of that
0: though. I, I, I so, so let's stay there just for a second. Let's just stay there. Because yeah. this is this is a point of contention and this is a real point of tension. Vouchers may not solve that, but criticizing vouchers doesn't solve the system that the majority of American students are in that is a color-coded system. Even if we say, let's shut down vouchers, let's not, because I'm a person right now who's saying public school choice has to be the thing that we elevate. It's gotta be so good. That, um, that people want to stay, but it's the thing we should elevate right now. So if we shut down all these red state voucher programs right now, we still are got got this other thing to contend with, which is this very, the inequality in American public schools based on the district system is something that I think is like a third rail and people don't really want to touch it, but they should. And, and you're right, vouchers don't solve that. Okay, so let's just agree on that. Vouchers don't solve that. But then you still do have a bunch of kids like, listen, so... You wrote a piece in time, and I, sh- I was shaking my head yes to a lot of things in the in this piece that you wrote. This is what you wrote in one part. In Wisconsin, 41% of voucher schools have closed since the program's inception in 1990. Okay. And that includes the large number of pop-up schools opening just to cash in on the new voucher payout. For these pop-up schools, average survival time was just four years before they closed their door. Okay. Let's assume that that's true, right? And And, you know, I want to make this... This point here, because someone listening to this is going to make this point to themselves, which is part of the reform ideology is that you always close the bottom performing schools so that only the cream rises to the top, basically. So, what you know, a lot of these schools, it's the Jack Welch thing. The Jack Welch thing is always drop your bottom five to 10% of anything and it makes everything better. But the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel has this in one of their stories that they have. The history of efforts to teach reading successfully in Milwaukee is not pretty. The fact is the reading scores have been stagnant or poor for more than two decades, despite reform attempts and proclamations over the years that things were going to improve. And I think this is where people don't listen to the actual people living in the neighborhoods and in in the schools that they've avoided, right? Middle class, college educated people who want to argue about these things almost 100% probably do not have their kids in these kind of future-stealing schools? And that's the thing that it doesn't seem like anybody on any side can answer for, right? Like, what do we do there, except for arguing about these other things? At the end of the day, public policy and
1: the budgets that go with public policy are reflections of values. Budgets are moral documents. And if we're talking about a world where Arizona, for example, the state, and, and Florida's coming up right behind it, the states literally cannot afford to invest in their public school system with we're talking about barely getting in cost of living adjustments. For example, states cannot afford to stand up to educational sectors. They just can't. And so what we're talking about today are these voucher programs that are It's sort of at the national level they make these kind of competitive arguments, market arguments and opportunity arguments. But the, the kind of dog whistling that they do on the ground through Facebook ads and, and other social media devices is. You can send your kids to your religious school. We're gonna put taxpayers. There's a reason Governor Abbott in Texas just went and and did his voucher campaign tour at only private schools, which is already work. If that's the policy that we're gonna reflect on, then who's gonna be left in the public schools when all of these other children have gone? You mentioned white flight out of Detroit. Well, we're seeing a new kind of white flight to these kind uh, kind of Christian nationalist schools that are now being paid for on the public dime in these red states that there's not going to be enough room for everybody there, even if those schools wanted to and tried to take them. So there's going to always be children in these public schools. Who's going to stay there? Who's going to be trapped there? It's going to be the kids who are not accepted. And I just, that's the piece that we, I I think we always have to remember. And, you know, one of the things that I, that I have a lot of folks in that who are sort of socially progressive, who have come to me and said, let's, let's go more into competition into this market oriented approach. And I have to admit that even on the test score issue that I brought up earlier, there is some small evidence that, that, you know, Having schools competing, like in charter or voucher program, do, does marginally raise test scores. But those studies and the the, um, the focus on competitive effects in those communities, the only way, the only places that those tend to show any payoff, is when the when the competing districts are communities of color our low-income communities and/or in communities that stand to lose investments when they come up short, and I just decline to accept the idea that pitting vulnerable communities against each other to compete for scarce dollars is moral public policy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. especially when we know that direct investments in those communities has substantial payouts, not just on test scores but on reductions in crime rate, on educational attainment levels. Uh, on a number of other social welfare mechanisms, so this idea that we're just going to kind of give everybody a coupon and that's going to solve structural racism in
0: education writ large. But do you do you get where I'm coming from, though, when I say that that the public's the white public school, college educated middle class who love pu- public schools so much abandoned those communities and and won't move back. And, and you know, I have friends that are doing integration efforts that are trying to get good white people to bring their kids and put their kids back into schools that are actually decent schools in some cases and would be decent for your kids. And they're having a very hard time selling even progressive, progressive liberal people on the idea that that's a way to have democratic education. That is a way to stop the blight. If you want to invest something in public schools, invest your child. In public schools, especially the ones that need you and your social capital and your other forms of capital that you have, because opportunity hoarding right now is so rampant and ridiculous, and it's it's like we can't have this honest discussion. So, so it's good that that those folks have a foil in the charter or the, the 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 voucher folks and the the school choice folks, because just like MAGA is trying to keep us worried about LGBTQ issues so that they don't have to have an agenda over here to make people's lives better. It feels like that is what charters are our are, are choice, you know, the enemies, that's what they become for people on this side. And I just want to say, I'm with you on a lot of things, but you guys got to bring your kids back to these schools. You've got to like make a moral, you just made a moral argument. My moral argument is very much aligned with uh, Dr. King. Right, like, don't talk to us. Don't talk us to death. Bring your children back and put your children in those schools. That's a moral act that will actually invest so much in those schools. And and, and the second thing, and then you know, I'll let you kind of chomp on that. But this thing around like scarce dollars. People talk about scarce dollars when it's an idea that they don't like. But for the ideas that they like, there's a limit, endless money, right? So I believe we could pay teachers more. I believe that we can afford to have every kid have breakfast and lunch and a counselor, by the way, maybe two counselors. And I believe we can have community schools with health services in the school. I believe that we could get every kid eyeglasses. I believe, you know, as a first world country, everything that is coming out of my mouth, I believe someone could run on this agenda that we're going to get every kid. Yeah, we're going to get every kid eyeglasses, every kid dental care. We're going to make sure that uh, they get the care that they need in the place we know they're going every day, which is school. We're going to provide more community schools, whatever. I'm for all that. But that's going to cost money. And so we can't say money is scarce on this other thing when we're pitching something over here that's very expensive. And we do want to make the argument that you can afford it. I mean, you can afford a lot of other things. You can afford Boeing. You can afford to treat all our kids like they live in a first world country. That is the educational world that I would like to
1: work toward. I think one of my deep frustrations, you look at whether my public writing on this topic, the last year is not the first time I've been critical of vouchers, but my public writing, my academic writing, whatever it, it, uh, the last five years until the last most recent year, I was doing other things teacher quality, for example, you listed some of these things, uh, working a lot with state agencies, trying to improve educational outcomes in a lot of areas other than school choice, partly because until COVID, I mean, I think if you talked to a lot of education sort of observers, the voucher movement, I think many of us naively thought, oh, the evidence is against it. Finally, these things are going away after years and years and years of, of threatening to expand. Oh, how naive were we? <laughs> and the reason I mention that is because I firmly believe that this voucher nonsense is partly a distraction away from everything that you just described. So there's, a, in my state, for example, our rank governor just uh, joined a couple other states in passing universal school meals. Something that, by the way, uh, and I don't know if they're reading academic articles over there in the governor's office, but it, talking about an issue area in education policy that has substantial evidence behind it in, in a number of outcome measures. For bang for the buck investing in school meals is huge there's no downside like literally there's no downside (laughs) why is it so betsy devos is against it republicans are against it why are they against it this is where i think that you know a Economists are useful, political scientists are useful, but we really, really need historians to weigh in on these things. And the reason is because for the last 40 or 50 years, movements affiliated with, dev- with vouchers today, it's not just DeVos, but others, have really tried to push back on the idea of community schools and schools as centers of communities and instead reorient the focus of community around churches. And actually, I actually work a lot with churches in my area. I know a lot of churches that are really, really in favor of school meals because th- their view, that's that's the Christ-like view of the world. I was about to say, Josh Calvin, you better
0: not mess with the religious people on my show, man. No, 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 but, <laughs> but, I say, but
1: there's a lot of, I think, r- religious folks who would who would firmly be in favor of this, but just from a political standpoint, this is why the, I mean, who would be opposed to universal meals for kids? It turns out a number of folks, and they are the same folks who are trying to move public dollars out of public schools in general. I don't think that there's anything. You don't have to be this deep, deep, you know, conspiracy theorist to walk through why that is. It's just simply because you've got it's one vision that you articulated of schools as kind of these whole child approaches, everything from eyeglasses to health centers, to meals, to learning, to civic engagement or are they you know kind of more sectarian isolated and that's the that's the historical kind of root of vouchers which is something you and i've talked about in the past that like this idea that we're going to isolate everybody in these pockets communities of like-minded people that's one vision for it for an american education the other is what you just articulated, and i would just say that vouchers are kind of an investment in this kind of separate isolated type of schooling um, and not the whole child approach that you described
0: so this is where i'll end on that and i'll wrap on that last point because i think it's really important i do think that there's a reason for us to have a common spot to be, to live and to grow and to to learn together. I, I see that more now than I've ever seen it be in my life as a as a goal, like as a cardinal north star, right? Because I'm seeing what happens when what happens when democratic structures fray and start splintering, it goes bad for us, right? And and when we can't trust our courts and we can't trust our government, we can't, th- that's nihilism. That creates a sense of just like, there's nowhere good we're going to go with that. So I'm more than ever um, down with the, the, common, the commons, <laughs> like having common places that we need to be. I just want to say though, if we do believe that, The the reason why vouchers can be attractive to some families so much is because they are in the left behind schools, meaning they have already been abandoned by the good progressive white people, right? They've already been abandoned. So someone comes along and says, I'm going to give you a ticket to get out of this blight that you're in, this school that no one would want to put a white baby in right? We're going to give you a ticket out of that. Now that person could be full of all kinds of bad motives, but that person is still coming to you, offering you something you didn't have, you know, five minutes before that. I'm not down with the, you know, wealthy people getting like first in line and jumping on, on the public dole, getting the new version of educational welfare. I'm not down with that. Right. Cause that's like reverse welfare. That's like, you know, subsidizing the rich to do something that they would do anyways. But I do have a lot of sympathy as somebody with my oldest kid that was living in, in that ecosystem of left-behind schools and knowing that my bosses and the people that I worked for, who were all really good liberal people, that their kids were never going to have to like make the choices that we had to make sure does seem attractive sure does feel attractive for somebody to say I'm going to give you a way out academics
1: like multi-syllabic words there's a word called positionality and and it simply means that you have to be aware of the position that you're coming from when you're when you're making a point I it's listen it's everything that you just said it's it's uh, who am I to disagree with right like I all I can tell you is that as a policy analyst, um, sort of been both in some of these schools that uh, take vouchers and as somebody who's looked at the data and as somebody who's talked to policymakers across the states you know that's that's those are the tools that I have. Those are that's my, you know, what I have to to come to this to, to this conversation with, and and I just view vouchers on the evidence and then from a normative standpoint as as distractions from the ideas and the ideals that you're describing. The evidence just shows that they're not working. And then here's the here's the thing. I'll just end with all of us are wrong some of the time, right? We're <laughs> we're, infalli- we're we're fallible human beings. And I, for something like this, given the stakes, I would rather be wrong, opposing a policy that's had uh, devastating outcomes for test scores that that is built on the backs of discriminating against vulnerable children and staying and making the case for investing in the communities that we have and in the school system we have and improving those despite their dreadful history in many, many, many places. You know, at the end of the day, you have to kind of make that decision sometimes it's not always about kind of uh, i i have deep distrust for for somebody from an ideological perspective who's pitching a so so simple sounding a solution uh, i think it's very attractive to think that we can sort of solve racism and decades of neglect and poverty by just giving everybody a coupon and saying go have at it on the open market i think that's why vouchers in particular are sort of a seductive not just to the people you're describing who have been victims of that neglect and, and who have been vulnerable but also to people who don't really want To think too hard about it. They don't want to think about issues like structural racism. They don't want to think about a historical Mm -hmm. neglect. They don't want to think about the problem of class and income in our in our country. And the voucher idea gives them a nice, easy way to kind of just uh say, you know what, everybody's free to make their own choices and, and I don't have to think about it. And that's to me,
0: I think, a deceptively easy solution to a really, really difficult common problem. Well, you've been a very good sport. I'm so happy that you came on today. I find the fact that we should have these conversations more, and I think that they should be had with what I said earlier. People who are actually living in the data, there should be some empirical truths in the world. We need kind of sober, authoritative, democracy-minded people to do their job like to let us civically engage in in a, in a world of ideas, but let's have some truth. And I appreciate that with you. You and I probably wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation a year and a half ago, right? Just be very honest with you. You and I wouldn't have been sitting here having this conversation, but I think it's so important now. I think it's like literally so important for us to, to have honest conversations. So thank you so much for coming on today. I'm happy to chat with you. We'll stay in touch. So for the, you guys listening, we do love when you guys give us voicemails and send us emails that tell us how you experienced the show, what you thought about the show. And there are two ways for you to be able to register your voice with us. One is to leave us a voicemail at 321-213-9171. Again, that's 321-213-9171. The other way is to send us an email at show at thebranchmedia.org. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branches podcasts at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of the Citizen Stewart Show.